Good morning, Bethel. Our study in the uh, gospel according to Luke brings us to chapter 17. We're going to finish chapter 17 this morning, Lord willing. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to read that text together to begin. It's Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. If you're using a a pew Bible, uh, you can find that text on page 1045. Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go away. Do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Okay. All the questions that might have just popped into your head as we walked through that section, maybe just set those aside for a second. I think certainly you can see that the kingdom of God is central. We sung about the king and his kingdom this morning, very appropriate for this text. But as we get started, I want you to think um, a couple of questions, just rhetorical questions, get your uh, mind focused on these things and, and examining your own heart. How often do you think of the return of Christ? How often does it factor into your average day or week or year? Well, the text is about this. The Pharisees, they wanted to know when the kingdom of God was coming The disciples wanted to know when and where these things were going to take place. Now, is that because they were kind of, you know, a little odd religious political zealots? And, you know, we're just not so obsessed with that question because we're really more sophisticated than that. I mean, if we never think about the return of Christ and we don't think about the kingdom of God, how much use do you think we're going to have for a text like this? It's going to seem like, what in the world does it have to do with anything in my life? Well, if that's where we're at, does that mean that the text is really not so applicable? (laughs) Or does it maybe mean that we need to be adjusted so that the burden of this text becomes a burden in our lives? 
How's that adjustment going to happen in our minds, in our hearts? Well, think about it this way. Maybe this will help set us up for the adjustment that I think God wants to do this morning. Only the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, can do that adjusting work in our lives. But this may help us see how much we need this adjustment and how much this is right where we live, even if it seems weird, vultures and all, okay? Government has fallen on hard times. Doesn't have great connotations in very many minds. And not just in our country, but in many countries of the world. Can you think of a country where you just think, oh, the leadership, the government is just great? How long is that list? There's corruption. There's spin, there's lying and manipulation and hypocrisy and selfishness and power playing and failure and folly and on and on and on. Okay? Some of you may have heard or seen some of that recently. As a result, some give up hopes for good government. They love to tag and classify all the failures. Cynicism fills the air. It's one way to respond. Other people pin their hopes on better government to solve our problems, better leadership, smaller government, bigger government, this plan, that change, and solutions fill the air. Now, as Christians, we obviously can't pin our hopes to a particular candidate or political agenda. We will never find our Savior on Capitol Hill. That does not mean that we shouldn't get well-informed before this or any election. We should. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have believers in office and pray for them to maintain their integrity and support them in any way we can when they take stands for righteousness, even as Greg prayed this morning, as we are instructed to pray for our leaders, believer and non, in 1 Timothy 2. It doesn't mean we shouldn't use our democratic voice individually, collectively, to speak out on all kinds of issues that have to do with morality and justice and righteousness. Love of neighbor requires that. But at the end of the day, we will never find our Savior on Capitol Hill or in Dover or anywhere else. And all the failures and follies and corruption in our earthly government ought to increase our longing for God's government. Okay? We ought to long for his kingdom to come. And bad government can actually be a a servant for those longings. I think sometimes we just don't connect the dots. This... We actually have this longing. This text is more appropriate than we realize, talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. All the political and economic longings and fears, do you have some fears? All of those longings and fears that you have are tied in with this issue that we're going to consider this morning. It's because you want God's kingdom at the end of the day. And that's a good thing. Yes, it can go wrong and get perverted and fixated on the wrong things and the wrong people, but a desire for the kind of government that King Jesus is and will bring, is bringing, will bring, is actually a good thing. It's a good thing to long for. Listen to Isaiah 9. Greg read Isaiah 11, but listen to Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. That is a big government you can believe in. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, do you long for God's kingdom to come? Listen to Isaiah 60. 
okay? This is more, more revelation about the nature of the kingdom when it comes. We ought to long for this. So Isaiah 60 says, instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. Instead of iron, I'll bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Ha! Did you look forward to that day? Violence shall no more be heard in your land. When this king's kingdom comes, when this king's king, yes, devastation or destruction, no more devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. And you can hear that echoed and ultimately fulfilled in Revelation 21 and 22, the home of righteousness, the new heavens and the new earth. Don't you long for God's kingdom to come? Maybe you've longed for it more than you realized you longed for it. And maybe that longing has been locked on the wrong things. It's kind of dropped down to earthly hopes. Okay, so this text is not as far off as it seems. And this text needs to be closer to us. We need to be closer to it. It's the reference point. We need to move and be adjusted by it. So another question, what if, a series of questions, what if, what if the economy turned around? What if jobs were truly abundantly available? And I mean not temporarily created by new debt injected into a card house economy. What if Roe versus Wade was overturned and reversed? What if gay marriage was struck down from sea to shining sea? What if, as a result, the church got fat and happy and apathetic and comfortable? What if it became fashionable to be a Christian? What if it was really easy? What if Christians were the ones with the clout and the pull and the power? And what if, satisfied with the peace and prosperity of America, we had no longing for God's kingdom to come? What if we thought it had? Would we be in a better position than we are now or worse? I'm intentionally being provocative, okay? I'm not saying that to long for, and certainly the realization of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, would, that, that's definitely something we should long for and strive for. What I'm saying by setting that up is we need to think about what we're really seeking. So let's pray and dive into our text for this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you that you, by your gospel grace, are our Father. We thank you that you are the heavenly Father, like Russell said, the transcendent Father that is sovereignly in control of all things. And never is this universe or any country spinning out of control, not even an individual life spinning out of control that you cannot work. You oversee all things. And we thank you that because of Jesus, in his name, covered with his blood, given his righteousness as your children, because of your grace, we can say, Father in heaven, please, your name be hallowed. You are great and holy and awesome and majestic. And so often we treat you as if you were a small thing, a trifle. Forgive us. Show us how great you are and how small we are so that our lives and then through us in this world as you make us salt and light, 
Would your name be hallowed more and more and more? We want your kingdom to come. You are the king. Help us to embrace and welcome your rule, your mastery. It's such a good rule and reign. And every other master is a bad master that will enslave us. So, Lord, awaken a longing for your kingdom to come. And as we consider the nature of your kingdom and the coming of your kingdom, would you cause it to actually come as we study your word about your kingdom this morning? Answer this prayer that you taught us to pray. We need your grace. We want you to shape and adjust us where we need adjustment. We don't want to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. So, Lord, please have your way with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful for you as we walk through this text. We're going to look first at verses 20 to 21. And first, Jesus addresses the Pharisees. Okay, look at verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them, the Pharisees, and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Okay, so Jesus, during his earthly life and teaching, spoke quite a bit about the kingdom. He was preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Just do a little search on kingdom. You'll see how many times this has showed up already in the book of Luke. And the Pharisees here ask him, when? When's it going to come? And Jesus responds by telling them that it's not coming in the way that they expect. In fact, it can't be coming because it's already present. It's in their midst. So the question is, can you see it? Can you see that it's in your midst? The issue actually of spiritual perception is key here. Okay, also in the way that he addresses the disciples. You see it. Look for all the, the seeing language. Do you see all the seeing words here? Look at them. Just in verses 20 and 21. And he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look. There's another seeing word. For behold. That's a, that's a command. Look. <laughs> Open your eyes. Look at this. Okay. So it's not surprising that the Pharisees are blinded to the presence of the kingdom. Jesus had already sought to show them that the kingdom was in their midst. Back in Luke 13, he was saying, what's the kingdom of God like? What should I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took through in his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So the kingdom of God is like mustard seed, and it's like leaven. The king himself was in their midst, and they did not see it. They're not expecting a mustard seed. They're not expecting the leaven of a humble, suffering servant savior who's after their hearts, changing them from the inside out. They're expecting a battering ram of a great political, military, religious leader. So you got to get inside their heads. They're thinking, how could the kingdom have come if, or how could it be present even, if Pilate was still governor? You know, the one who mingled the blood of some Galilean sacrifice with their own blood? The sacrifice with their, you know, he killed them right there at the altar. Back in chapter 13. How could the kingdom of God have come if Caesar is still Lord? How could the kingdom have come be present if the land and its people are still under Roman oppression and occupation? How could the kingdom have come if tax collectors are still oppressing the poor with their unjust fleecing practices, etc., etc., etc.? Come on, give us a sign. But some of them said, when we hear that language, Maybe you are recalling some other texts. 
He cast out demon by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. As the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. Come on, where's the pyrotechnics? Prove it to us. Show us something impressive and we'll believe you. But they were blind. Okay, They didn't realize that the sign had already been given. The kingdom had already come. It was present among them. In fact, another place where the language of sign is used, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a feed box. So the kingdom was in their midst because the king was in their midst and he was preaching the kingdom, but it was not what they expected. That's why he said crazy upside down things like, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, again, this language of it's coming, you know, it's, it's not coming with signs to be observed. That's not to say that there's no observable, observable phenomena. That's to say that the interpretation of any observable phenomena, (laughs) it's hard to say, um, was not clear to the quote-unquote naked eye. Spiritual perception, faith had to be granted in order to be able to really see this kingdom and this king. Okay, remember that? You know, he casts out demons. Oh, he's casting them out by by the power of Satan. Really? Really? House divided against itself, you know. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's observable phenomena, casting out demons. That's a show of power. But they didn't interpret it rightly. They, they attribute it to Satan. Okay, so they thought that the kingdom was a future reality, realized all at once in this massive display of power. So the kingdom is already breaking in. They don't realize that. It's present, it's operative, but it's, in their eyes, unrecognized. It's resisted, okay? They don't see it. So for the Pharisees, on account of their mistaken criteria, what they were expecting, on account of the fact that they thought the coming of the kingdom was all off in the future, they were blinded to the presence of the kingdom in their midst. The disciples were also in danger of being blind to the coming of the kingdom, but in a different way. Okay, so Jesus turns to address them now. Look at verses 22 to 24. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look, look there, look here. Do not go away. Do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So the disciples believed at this point, however imperfectly, and obviously we see over and over again that they're kind of thick, they're not getting it, but still they're following him. They believe he's the Messiah. They thought that he was bringing the kingdom now. So the Pharisees needed to see the already of the coming of the kingdom in their midst because they thought it was all off in the future with certain signs. The disciples needed to see that it, the not yet of the coming of the kingdom. They needed to see that it wasn't all coming now, that it was coming at the end. So he prepares them. The days will come, guys, when you will long to see the fullness of the kingdom and you will not see it which leaves you vulnerable. When you are desperate, sometimes you will do desperate things. People don't see mirages at the drinking fountain. They see them in the desert. It's going to get bad on this earth, men, disciples. You will long for the kingdom to come in its fullness. It's like that thought back in Luke 5. Remember it when the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus said to them, you can't make the, the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? Kingdom's in your midst. But the days will come when days will come. <laughs> when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast in those days. You will long to see the days of the Son of Man. So when you are so hungry for the kingdom... 
feels like a desert that you don't feel like eating. You need to be careful because you're going to be susceptible to being led astray. There will be those who say, look here, look there. Here's an answer. Here he is. This is it. This is our Messiah. Don't go running. Don't chase after any mirages, especially when you're thirsty. You won't need to go looking for me. I'm not going to come again in secret. You won't miss me when I come the second time, when I return to bring the fullness of the kingdom. That city with foundations, that better homeland, that home of righteousness, when your overseers will be peace and your taskmasters will be righteousness, when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea in the new earth, when there will be perfect peace, complete universal human flourishing, no more curse, all things new, no more threats, no more death, no more mourning or pain, no more suffering, no more sin, nothing to make you afraid anymore, fullness of joy and pleasures evermore at my right hand. When I come to bring all of that in its fullness, don't worry, you won't miss me. No one will. But you need to be ready. And but first, before I come that way, there's a cross ahead. Verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So the disciples, as we've seen elsewhere, and as we'll see after this point as well, they expect Jesus to usher in the kingdom any day now. Peter was not the only zealot disciple who had his sword and was ready to fight. So they needed their categories shaped and adjusted and remade, okay? He's predicted his suffering and death before. He's going to do it again, and it doesn't seem to sink in until after the resurrection. He's seeking to correct their false expectations of the purpose of his coming. He's saying, I must suffer and be rejected. It's a strong word for the word must there in Greek. It speaks of this divine necessity that's compelling Jesus to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Okay, yes, nothing, the, the coming of the kingdom in all its fullness is God's will. Nothing can thwart that will. His kingdom will come. All the wannabe kings and kingdoms will be thrown down and the king of kings and lord of lords will alone reign. And yet, the only path to that glorious kingdom being realized is through the path of suffering and death that Jesus is on as he's headed to Jerusalem for, that, for just that purpose. He must suffer and die. If there's going to be anybody populating that kingdom, if there's going to be anybody that's ready to come and be gathered at his second coming, he must suffer and die. Now, this was unexpected news for the disciples, but it is such good news for them and for us. The kingdom of God was in their midst. We can so easily just go right past that. If we were there and we really got that, and we really got who we are by nature, that statement should cause us to shudder. We all by nature are cosmic revolutionaries. We want our will to be done on earth as it is in our own minds. We are all little wannabe gods and goddesses from toddlers, actually before toddlers, on up. If they were big enough, they would depose you and, you know, completely force their will upon you. You will do my will. We get angry when people cross our will, when God crosses our will. We want traffic lights and weather and bosses and clients and health and beauty and relationships and schedules and everything, everything, everything to revolve around our will. So for the true king to show up when all us wannabe kings are scrambling and fighting to sit on the throne and wield the scepter, no, it's fine. Getting angry, warring against all the threats to our kingship. When the true king shows up, 
that should be a terror. We're going to be crushed. But then to hear that the true king comes humbly to seek and save his enemies. Instead of crushing us, this king came to be utterly crushed on the cross. That was the plan from the beginning. It's exactly where I'm headed, to be crushed for you. So if we own our insurrection and our pride and our selfishness and our God complexes, and we humbly repent and throw down our weapons, then we hear the wonderful news that we've already heard. Luke 12, don't be afraid, little flock. For it was your father's good pleasure. He's chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Really? To me? To me? Yes. <laughs> yes. Now? Well, yes and no. It is yours in promise, by grace, through faith in Jesus. And you can bank on that promise. You need to bank on that promise. Live by faith in that promise and all my other promises that are blood-bought, but you must wait. Faith and patience. Faith and patience. The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So the kingdom of God is in your midst, and, disciples, it's coming. And it's necessary for it to come in weakness and through suffering before it comes in power and victory. So that's got to shape our expectations and, and prepare us for how we live in the meantime. Jesus goes on to give them some historical examples to do just that work of preparation. So let's look at point four, the days of Noah and Lot and the day of the Lord, verses 26 to 37. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone, brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Do you notice something here? Look at the activities that Jesus chooses to focus on in the days of Noah and Lot. Those were wicked days, but he does not focus on the evil and the wickedness. The reason is this. He's speaking to his disciples. He's preparing them. And the greatest danger for disciples is not sodomy. It's spiritual sleepiness. It's the third soil danger back in chapter 8 of getting choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. Good things that get put in the wrong place. It's living as if this kingdom is our kingdom. Listen to these lists again. They were eating. Foodies. Recipe people. Like, seek first the kingdom. Again, food is good, good gift. Thank God for it. We're not ascetics. Okay, I'm not going to qualify each of these. Um, they were drinking. They were marrying. Good gift. They were being given in marriage. They were buying. They were selling. Nothing inherently evil with those things. They were planting. They were building. We love doing those things, don't we? Those things aren't bad, but they can be dangerous. It's so easy to make good things into God things. It's so easy to seek first this kingdom. But this is not our kingdom. We are not of this world. We can't get too comfortable here. The kingdom is coming. Our kingdom is coming. We're citizens of heaven. Look at verse 30. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who's on the housetop, back then, parapet, you know, like a little fence. That was the living quarters up on the top of the house, okay? We don't do that today. Sloping roofs, a little dangerous, okay? So... The one who's on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. 
In other words, to use the language of Jesus from chapter 12, beware, be on your guard. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Or again, back in chapter 9, Jesus said to someone, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And when we looked at that, it's not that the father had died, but wait till the father dies and then bury the father. And Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me, first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, like Lot's wife, is fit for the kingdom of God. When the Son of Man comes, there will be nothing more important than the Son of Man. And that is a great illustration of how to live always. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. You must be ready because judgment will be swift. God doesn't have to send you advance notice. If you're living for this world, he doesn't owe you advance notice so that you can, ooh, I better get serious now, get everything in order. 34, I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taking the other left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taking the other left. And then verse 36, if anybody notices, if you have um, an ESV, I think it's just skipped, and there's a footnote. It's in italics in NAS. I'll explain that in just a second. But the point is simple. The coming and the sifting and the separating that happens on the day of the Lord will be swift and unexpected. That's the point. Okay, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but I, I don't want to skip over it. Um, so I don't want anybody to think, ooh, is this some problem that, you know, the church is trying to suppress and hide? Because he didn't say anything. You know, no. Um... There's lots of manuscripts, papyri, fragments of biblical texts that have been discovered, like over 5,000, okay? Better attestation of the Bible than any other ancient document, okay? But a lot of those manuscripts and fragments and papyri have been discovered in the last 400 years, okay? A lot of archaeology going on. The manuscripts that were available when the King James Version back in 1611 was translated around 1611 and published those manuscripts that they were working off of are inferior to what we have today, okay? That's why there are a good handful of places where there are differences in the text. In the whole scope of things, very minor differences and really only a few, relatively speaking. That's why a modern translation like ESV, NAS is preferred. Okay, enough on that. If you have questions on that issue, please come talk to me. Happy to explain it further. But the bottom line is judgment will be swift, so the disciples respond with a question. The Pharisees, remember, they had asked when. Now the disciples answer by asking, where? Where, Lord? And Jesus says to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. What in the world does that mean? Seems pretty cryptic. Well, there are certainly a variety of opinions that I won't bore you with at this point, okay? But I think that the meaning is actually pretty simple. The disciples asked, where? Where will this coming in this judgment take place? Well, just as the presence of carrion, okay, roadkill, <laughs> um, dead body, animal or otherwise back then, um, human as well, is made obvious or indicated by the circling of vultures, so the presence of the Son of Man will be evident. Okay, just like the point made back in 22 to 24. Okay, you don't have to listen to anybody saying, look here, look there, he came secretly, I've got the inside track. It's going to be like lightning. You're not going to miss it. So the point is not to focus on gruesome roadkill scene. In the words of New Testament scholar Daryl Bach, in effect, Jesus is saying, do not worry about where the judgment will occur, for once it comes, it will be too late, and all will see it. As such, the point is judgment's finality when it becomes visible. Think about that picture. You see vultures, it's already over. So pretty sobering stuff, okay? What's, 
That's the primary takeaway for us. Let's think about that day and how that impacts our days, this day, tomorrow, another day, the next day. Verses 32 and 33 again. We're going to focus on those, but I'll draw your attention a couple of, to verse 31 as well. If you look back over this whole text, 27, or 20 to 37, here are the imperatives. Ready? Behold. It's an imperative. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Make sure you see that. Second, do not go away and do not run after those who say, look here, look there. Okay, verse 23. So verse 21, verse 23. Then verses 31 to 33, and this is where we're going to focus. On that day, the one who's up on the housetop, whose goods are in the house, must not go down. He must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, another imperative. And then there's this helpful explanation of what that means. In verse 33, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. So how do you get ready for Jesus' return? Second coming. Dried food? Stockpile? Guns and ammo? Graphs and charts and trying to guess who the Antichrist is or will be or what the timetable is? Is that how you prepare? No. You prepare by dying daily. You prepare by seeking first the kingdom daily. You turn your back on trying to save your life and your comfort in this life, buying the lies that this is where your life is wrapped up. You lose your life for the sake of Christ and his kingdom day after day, and you'll be prepared to resist the temptation to turn back when the heat gets turned up, just like Lot's wife. That's just called living by grace, through faith, in Christ. Every day. Don't try to save your life. Repent of that impulse. Lose your life to gain Christ and to give Christ to other people. That's faith. It could get very hard, folks, for us in our lifetime. No prophet, but it could get very hard. Not because I'm forecasting, I'm reading the news, and I'm, you know, looking at some place in Ezekiel and doing one-to-one correlations. No, I'm just saying we live in a fallen world. And Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations we'll enter the kingdom. No matter what age you live in, no matter what generation you're a part of, that's true. Could get very hard for us, certainly. Things could really feel like a desert here en route to the promised land to get pretty thirsty. And we are tempted at times like that to run to other sources to slake our thirst. Cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We need to die to that. Repent of that. Get out of the cistern. Drink at the fountain. We're not home yet. In Matthew 24, Jesus warns us, because of lawlessness, this text very much sobers me. I think of it um, with some regularity. Because of lawlessness, Matthew 24 is is a powerful parallel to the text we're looking at right here. Because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, remembers Lot's wife. You see how important this warning is for the disciples, for you and me, if we call ourselves the disciples of Jesus? We need this preparation. Even if initially we think this text is miles away. No, no, this is very close. We need to be very close to this text. See, next week maybe, um, I'm actually toying with doing a message in preparation for the election on dual citizenship. You can pray for me in that. Um, Maybe this coming week, maybe the following. If not, we'll be right back in Luke 18. In Luke 18, he is telling a parable to the disciples that they ought to pray and not lose heart. 
And then look at verses 7 and 8. If you have your Bible open still to this area, look at 18, 7, and 8. Parallel thought. You can see how this all hangs together. After this parable, now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Are you ready? Are you going to live in between now and then so that you are ready, waiting in faith? So, again, remember, he was speaking to his disciples. The Lot's wife is so wise, so appropriate for us. She was so close to deliverance, and yet judgment fell. Do you see how important her example is for people that claim to be disciples of Jesus who are going to go through a desert, who are going to go through some hard times and might be tempted to chuck it all or to go after some other supposed Savior? The day of judgment, if, if, you'd have, if you'd have looked at her life in that house, day to day in Sodom, you might have thought, oh, there's a believing Jew. Certainly in comparison to all the other Sodomites, Gomorrahites. But the day of judgment actually revealed what was in her heart. She was leaving what she loved to her, it was lost to flee Sodom. She wasn't supposed to look back, and she did. Do you remember Demas? Let's close with this example. At the end, you don't have to turn there. Just listen to this. At the end of the book of Colossians, okay, which was written probably around AD 62, Paul writes this. Luke, the beloved physician, okay, so the one who, who researched and wrote and gave this gospel by God's providence to us, this wonderful book, he was a faithful worker with Paul, the beloved physician. He sends you his greetings, Colossians, and also Demas does. Trusted fellow worker. At the end of 2 Timothy, which is just a couple years later, AD 64, 65, probably, the last letter that we have from the Apostle Paul, he writes this, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Am I saying a genuine believer can lose his salvation? No. I'm saying the heat reveals what's in our heart. And this warning is grace ahead of time to say what's in my heart, what kingdom am I seeking? You know what it says immediately before that Demas loved this world. Paul's saying, I fought the good fight, finished the course, kept the faith, and now is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Odd way to say it. NIV says, longed for his appearing. That kind of gets at the meaning, but it loses the connection between Demas who loved the world. So the word is actually loved. Do you love slash long for his appearing? Or is it just out of sight, out of mind, and we just are li we're just living? So this crown for all who, who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon for Demas having loved this present world has deserted me. And then verse 11 says this, only Luke is with me. <laughs> Luke got it. By God's grace, he got it. And he recorded it for us so that we'll get it too. So that we can come to the end, whether it's at death or at the return of Jesus, no matter what heat we face in between here and the promised land in the desert, by grace, through faith, in Jesus, we can say, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. If it would have been up to me, I would have derailed, but God's grace kept me on the path. I'm so thankful. I didn't, I didn't buy those lies when I was tempted. Sought first the kingdom, his righteousness, 
And now there is awaiting me all of that kingdom of heaven, all those promises, that fullness, the consummation that we considered earlier. So Luke got it, and he recorded it for us so that we will get it too. May we get it by God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your kingdom come first in our hearts where rather than resisting your rule, I pray that we would welcome it. If there's anyone here who has never bowed the knee to Jesus, and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and the only Savior, I pray that you would cause your kingdom to come into their heart right now. And for those of us who are following Jesus, I pray that we would not section off parts of our lives, big or small, seeking to rule over and be master of our own lives in any way. I pray that your kingdom would come, your rule would be extended over every nook and cranny of our lives, and that we would remember Lot's wife, and that we would gladly not try to save our life in this life, but lose it for the sake of Christ, knowing that all you're asking us to die to and give up is loss in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord. So your kingdom come in us and through us as we seek to share this gracious word and warning with those neighbors that we rub shoulders with, those people in our lives, whatever sphere of life they're in, that we rub shoulders with day in and day out, that they might be rescued as well. Adjust us, Lord. We need it. Help us to seek first your kingdom. And we look forward to your return. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. May we be people who love your appearing. And we long for the day when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In Jesus' name, amen. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Go in peace.